Hello and welcome. I'm Brian Pace Braga, and you're listening to Building Business and Balance Conversations with BPB. I created this podcast for anyone looking for insight, mentorship, and guidance from someone who's been there and back again on the road to success. I'm so excited to bring the most brilliant thought leaders and friends on air with me to get real about what it means to build business and balance and how you define your own success. I am so excited to bring you this episode featuring an incredibly admirable entrepreneur in a new space that I personally haven't delved into yet. Ice cream. I love ice cream. David Greenfield is the CEO and co-founder of Dream Pops, a plant-based ice cream that is sweeping the American nation in popularity. The idea came to Greenfield while working in investment banking, when he realized that his dairy and sugar-heavy late-night snacks were causing him to crash at work. He knew he had to shift to a better plant-based diet with cleaner alternatives, and the inspiration for Dream Pops came full circle during a trip to Cartagena, Colombia. Since then, Dream Pops has partnered with brands like Barbara Sturm, Nike, Starbucks, and Six Flags. Greenfield has also been named to the Forbes 30 Under 30 class of 2020 for food and drink. Take a listen as the future Willy Wonka of plant-based confectionery products and I dive into the unique opportunity in content marketing, the need for plant-based products, and the value of cross-industry experience. And the second I saw that he was using technology to build better for you brands that were better for human beings, I was like, wow, what an amazing way to make a living. You can leverage technology to actually make people live healthier lives via something as intimate as a food and beverage product. The other thing I found interesting, which was on your website, was your story began in Colombia. Columbia is a place that I've spent a lot of time. I have some different business interests in the natural resource space, um, but I've loved my time in Columbia. So I would love to hear where, where the story started and why Columbia and what was the store and just take me back to, to the start of, of, uh, of your lack of a better word of your dream. Yeah. I'm happy to, and, and I'll get into the nitty gritty. I don't usually talk about this part as much. So um, I had just gone through a really bad breakup, and it was the first time that I had ever really experienced anything like that. And uh, you know, I had a you know a trip planned uh, with my ex and all of my college buddies. You know, they they could see I was definitely going through some some stuff um, emotionally, and so we decided to all take a trip uh, to uh, Medellin. Cartagena, Bogota, and Santa Marta, and to just, you know, be with friends, be present. We'd all just graduated from college. And so while out there, you know, I was really trying to figure out, I was uh, doing eye banking. I was very stressed out, hadn't taken a, a vacation. This is really my first vacation. I was also distressed. You know, I, I was going through a lot emotionally with my ex and the breakup. And then on top of that, um, my parents were actually going through a divorce. So it was a really tumultuous time. Uh, you know, I feel like Oftentimes in life, everything is all happening at once. Um, but looking back on that experience, like, yes, I was going through a lot of pain, but I was also uh, in a very uh, interesting point in my life where I was looking for creative outlets and uh, meaning and inspiration. And, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a student of entrepreneurs and I constantly find that 
a lot of founders, some of my favorite founders like Howard Schultz or Blake Mykoski, some others, they'll go international and they'll find a product, a brand or a service uh, in, an, in a foreign market that inspires them to want to bring it back. And so Howard was, uh, you know, coffee culture and the barista stand and the romance of the barista stand. Blake Mykoski discovered those really unique moccasins and shoes uh, that he brought back. And so while I was traveling, um, I'm always, you know, very curious. And so I, I, I came across a number of paleta shops, um, which are, you know, the Latin American term for popsicles and ice cream. And they had a really beautiful way of presenting them. But there was also just a lot of amazing food innovation and, and culinary innovation to these paletas. And so um, I just I've always loved I mean, I have a huge sweet tooth. So I've, I've eaten Dippin' Dots and ice cream and candies and snacks. And that's just a really um, just something that resonates with me uh, in my childhood. And so I went to one in particular um, that was was in Cartagena. And I started to just ask myself why there wasn't a lot of innovation in, in frozen uh, desserts. And the way that this store was crafted was really inspirational. And so that uh, piece led me to start researching um, the, the ice cream space, um, frozen confections and all of confectionery. That's really that spark that, that kicked off that, that interest. And uh, when I get into something, I, I become obsessed. And so I pulled every research report. I looked at every uh, you know, blog, um, you know, every piece of packaging and innovation that had happened in ice cream over the last, you know, hundred years. So that's kind of where that started. What year was that? That was 2015. Wow. Yeah. I found the same thing in my life. It's almost like the way the universe says, you know, you got to change, you know, this stuff's not working. This, this, the stuff that served you to this point in time, it's not working anymore. Um, I found the same thing in my life that great things have come into my life right after. And actually my, mine was a lot of my, um, struggles were 2015 also. And then coming out of that were, you know, <clears throat> lighter, uh, lighter, lighter days ahead. Um, it's, it's funny because I think so. So there's a lot more to that, right? Like how does that lead to starting a, a company like dream pops on top of that spark of inspiration that leads me, I'm still doing eye banking, but I'm, I'm researching candies, confection, sweets, and I'm Googling and I'm going on blogs um, and I'm looking at European food innovation and um, serendipitously, I'm getting to the point where I'm ready to quit my job because I've had enough of iBanking and I'm also exploring, you know, getting a, a job up at a startup in San Francisco. So eventually I get two job offers um, while I'm doing all of this research. I get one job offer to go work at a CPG, uh, you know, food tech startup up in the Bay Area. And I put in my two weeks notice and then simultaneously, my firm says, you know, we don't want to lose you. We've got this really unique opportunity to move to Milan, Italy for two years um, and, you know, be an iBanker out there. They had just acquired an investment bank called Leonardo & Co. And I come to this fork in, in the road and I decide, wow, um, you know, I'm really passionate about the food and beverage space. I don't like finance, um, but this is like a once in a lifetime opportunity. I can either go move abroad to Milan, Italy. I know zero people out there. I don't speak Italian. Or I can move and do the more comfortable path back to the Bay Area where I went to college, where I had friends and trying to chase kind of an old life in a, in a history there. And uh, yeah, you know, I, I decided um, Jan of 2016 that I was going to make one of the biggest bets in my life and move to Milan. A lot of that inspired by Howard Schultz, who 
got most of his inspiration for Starbucks in Milan and Verona. And I like read every book he put out. And I just started researching entrepreneurs who lived abroad for a few years. And my gut just said that this was going to change my life. And so that was like, I bet on it. And I said, you know what, Let, let's do it. And uh, yeah, moved to Italy. How old were you at the time? 20, 26. I was 25, actually. 25 when I moved out there. Very admirable. Um, where, where do you think this level of ambition comes from in you? Because even hearing you just walk through. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really lucky. I have two parents that are entrepreneurs that are, you know, self-made entrepreneurs. Um, my dad is from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and he moved out to LA to his dream was to be a director. Um, and he ended up building a career in the entertainment industry and built his own company. Um, my mom is actually a rabbi and has a, a minion of, you know, hundred families where she has her own uh, practice and, and services um, that she, she offers in, in the Jewish community. And so, um, being around two parents who celebrate crazy ideas, mind you, I've started a few companies that didn't pan out. You know, I, I, I was a, I did have a rap career, so I was a rapper and I put out an <laughs> EP, a mixtape lifestyle. Nice. Um, and I, you know, I performed in college, like at, at fraternities and, and I was all about my, you know, I was very serious about that uh, back in, back in college. Um, and then, uh, I had a, a sunglasses company, uh, that didn't pan out. And I also had a boxed wine business, uh, when I, from 21 to 24, uh, 23. And so, uh, three failed endeavors, creative pursuits that weren't shot down my, by my parents, they were celebrated and they were like, you know, whatever you want, you know, you, you can, you can go build a company, you can be a creative artist. Um, and I think that that environment is so much more powerful and, and I'm lucky because a lot of entrepreneurs don't have that positive, uh, affirmation or feedback. Um, and I think that that has allowed me to bet on myself and have the confidence to go pursue things like a dream pops. Yeah. And not, sounds like not be in a place of fear of failure, but in a place of, you know, abundance or, you know, love that, yeah, whatever you do you know, you might, you might quote unquote fail at it short term, but actually it's just a, another step in the, in the road to whatever one defines as success. I don't know if you'd agree with this, but the longer that I've been built, like been in business for myself um, and Steve, I'll give Steven Eisen credit. Um, who's I, I know is also on the podcast. Um, I don't know if I necessarily think the idea matters as much as people think when you're starting a business I really see it as like a ball of clay. And then the best entrepreneurs that are out there can form that clay and take feedback from the market and, and change and move the ship to create a viable business. Now, some businesses are going to be multi-billion dollar opportunities. Some are lifestyle businesses, few million. But I do think you can pivot or tweak or adjust any, any widget to be a business if you are a true entrepreneur. I, I couldn't agree more. I think uh, I would take a good idea with a great entrepreneur any day over a great idea with a good entrepreneur yep. um, or, you know, senior management team. I, I couldn't agree more. And I think so much of what gets in the way of, um, of people not making the step that you took 
you know, in 2015, 2016 is exactly what it is, which is, you know, you're going off the beaten path. You're going to, as a human experience, different smells, different structures, you know, different people, and you're going to absorb so, so much, well, the same amount maybe of, of information or opportunity or new people, but very different. So if you can bring that off the beaten path experience and you give some other examples, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's almost counterintuitive, but if you think about it, it's actually just very, you know, basic, you know, rational thinking. And I think what I found in talking to a lot of entrepreneurs is it's that risk of being different, you know, in school growing up, much of school is, you know, conforming to tests and, you know, the bell curve and how you assess someone and trying to get into a situation where humans are a bit more, um, maybe not robotic, but just, you know, fit the system as opposed to, Hey, be different, you know, go for it, go and try something for two. And it's okay. No problem. If you quote unquote fail at it, but I think it's the way the humans are, you know, raised in, in general and the greatest, yeah, the greatest entrepreneurs I've been fortunate enough to get to know and back. It's usually the ones that take the, the, the path that's least, uh, least, least walked or least hiked. And, and those are the ones that actually create extraordinary opportunities. I couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. Um, and I, I also, there's another thing that, um, I know you've experienced, and I see, I see this direct correlation between the number of cities or uh, groups of friends or um, experiences that, you know, when there's a direct, I believe there's a direct correlation between people who, are, who have lived in multiple cities and have, have, uh, have had to adapt to more environments and, you know, direct success in business. Just because you have to meet so many new groups of friends, you have to um, you know, understand pattern recognition, what works in certain environments, what doesn't, how to become well-liked, how to converse, how to adapt. And so uh, I feel like you've lived in a ton of different cities and that's got to um, definitely allow you to have multiple perspectives, but also um, see new opportunities that others might not. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a probably a big reason as to you know, the success, some of the successes I've, I've, I've experienced, but it comes with real sacrifice. Like you did sacrifice not going back to your old friends in the Bay area, which is comfortable. You know, you, you chose discomfort and you chose growth. You know, my experience has been where growth comes, you're uncomfortable. And if, you know, if I find myself in many days in a row feeling too comfortable, it's almost like, Ooh, you know, I need to get out of this, which is a blessing and a curse too. But I, uh, I, I would like to, to ask you about um, the consumer goods category, you know, or, you know, a, a space that, and I don't know if it's just me, but I see so many idea startups, you know, so much, many people in the, in the world have gotten great at graphic design. And then there's this you know, new wave and then there's hundreds or thousands of products that come out how did you have enough conviction early days to get into a space that is so competitive, you know, and in a world that's so competitive and, and you're thriving in it now. So uh, 
yeah, how, how did you, wh- where did that, where did that come from? And how did you think about addressing the marketplace? Um, what, what, what was in your mind? Yeah. So I'm really lucky because um, my, my sophomore year of college, I interned for uh, at the time who, one of the guys that I think is in, ext- I mean, he still is an absolute visionary in this space, but just in general, the way he lives his life is, is a way that I try and emulate and, and, uh, and follow um, a lot of the same practices that he does. His name's Jesse Itzler. Um, I worked for him in my sophomore and junior summer in New York. He had an incubator called 100 Mile Group, and it was a hybrid fund, but also uh, a content machine or a social media machine marketing agency that basically what they did is Facebook and Twitter of the day, Jesse realized, he's a serial entrepreneur, he realized via Facebook and Twitter, he could build global brands. Um, and he did that with Zico Coconut Water, um, with, with Health Warrior. And then he had a couple other food and beverage companies, uh, Voli Vodka, Sheets Energy Strips. And so what he was doing was leveraging relationships and the next wave of influencer marketing and social media marketing in 2010, when this was really early. And I watched him take Zico coconut water and sell it to Coca-Cola um, in 2012 and how so quickly he was able to upend a Gatorade, a Powerade, some of the largest powers that be because of the reach of his social media marketing and his guerrilla marketing. Um, and the second I saw that he was using technology to build better for you brands that were better for human beings, I was like, wow, what an amazing way to make a living. You can leverage technology to actually make people live healthier lives via something as intimate as a food and beverage product. And myself, I grew up loving and having intimate, like these really, some of my fondest memories are via food. Like I think about Dippin' Dots at the amusement park at Six Flags. And for whatever reason in my childhood, food and that that sensory experience relates to me. And so, um, you know, a cup of coffee, like there are these moments in the day that I really resonate with. And so I think a lot of people do, and they have really powerful memories associated with food. And so I thought learning everything I, I learned with, with Jesse in those years, going to iBanking to understand how to raise money, how to operate businesses, I now had the tools if I had the right product um, that I could build this next generation of, of food and beverage companies. And so um, Dream Pops, back to why Dream Pops, right? It's so competitive. Um, some of the, as a student of this game, since 2010, 2009, um, I always thought about iconic products and packaging and brands, and I collect them. One being the Palm Wonderful bottle. If you've ever had the, that pomegranate juice, right, with the the, the iconic oh, yeah. form iconic. factor, that bottle, totally. yeah, like totally iconic. You look at Dippin' Dots, that form factor, you will never forget it. Um, you know, there are a few other brands, but what I noticed was. When you create a form factor that you don't, that does not require packaging for you to know what it is, that is the most powerful um, signal that you can give to a consumer. And when I, when I back to, I was in Milan and I was going to trade shows all over Europe, whenever I could get off, like on a weekend, like I flew to Vilnius, Lithuania to look at a chocolate factory because I met a chocolatier who was incredible and still is shout out to chocolate naive. Domantis, one of the most incredible chocolatiers in Europe. 
Um, but I would fly literally around the country or around, around, you know, everywhere in Europe, trying to find that product. And, uh, and I, I came across a food blog that had the dream pop on it. It was called something else at the time. And I flew to Berlin and I tried it and it matched all of the research that I was going over with plant-based trends, clean ingredients, no gums, no stabilizers and iconic form factor. And so the second I tried it and saw it, and it was a unique way to manufacture the product itself, I knew in my gut that this was something really powerful and, uh, and that this was going to be the next chapter. So I, I ended up partnering with, with him at the time, the inventor, and then I actually acquired the intellectual property. Um, I took my vacation that summer and went back and launched Dream Pops. And, uh, and then a year later, while doing both, I ended up quitting my job to go all in full time. I have so many questions. Okay. <laughs> I'll start with a simple one or maybe a simple one. Where did yeah. Dream Pops the name come from? Uh, we were thinking about something that would be whimsical, fun, approachable. Man, and we had so many names. We almost called it Jan, like just add nitrogen. Terrible. Um, <laughs> but but uh, American Dream and like the idea of going after your dream. Um, that just really resonated. And then, uh, so, you know, I think I said, like one of us said dream pops and we're like, that's, that's the name. And we're worried because we're like, that is such a strong name. Does anyone have dream pops? And shockingly, no one had trademarked it. And there's, I also, there's something powerful about two syllables like Starbucks, Nike, dream pops. Mm. Um, and it just, you know, it, it just, it worked and we knew that was it. Very cool. As you were walking through um, um, these fond childhood memories that were aligned with food that resulted in happiness, do you think for someone listening to this that remembers back to their childhood and their fond memories that you had these fond memories, they were in your, they're in your memory bank you then went and acquired the tools for you as investment banking, understand finance, understand money. And then do you think with the two of those, now you've come back full circle to living a very fulfilled, you know, life because you've aligned your childhood fond memories with tools that you've acquired, even though you didn't like them at the time you knew it was, or you felt it was the right thing to do to then live a much more fulfilled life in delivering confectionery goods no, in, a, in a healthy manner? No question. I think that looking back and connecting the dots, it's, it's the, obviously like the only way you can do it. I never would be in this position if I didn't have the tools that come from investment banking that not only allows investors to believe in you, that you can understand a PL, that you really know what your, your true gross margin is or landed margin, uh, that you can hire folks, that you can manage cash, that you can, you know, get raised debt and understand what that means to scale your company. Um, I was so anti-investment banking and finance in college because I was so in love with all the narratives of entrepreneurs and founders who didn't do it. And I was like, well, you know, Steve Jobs was never an investment banker. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is a terrible I, I don't know. I think there are so many routes to, to building a business. I actually think back to I, I may have done banking for too long, um, but I have no regrets. I think another way to do it is just to, to shadow 
a really strong entrepreneur. Like if I, and I did that, like I did that with Jesse. So I got to see how Jesse was building these brands. Um, however, even shadowing someone like that isn't going to give me the skills or anyone the skills to truly open to model. Like I was building the financial models for my business and, you know, still to this day, like I'm intimately involved in that. So I think that it gave me that additional power um, to, to be able to operate at this level. Um, and, and then back to what you said, I feel really lucky because like, I feel like I sacrificed and now I have those tools and now I'm really aligned with what I love to do. And I can hire people that can help with some of those more technical aspects while working with them and then focus on vision, strategy, product development, what, what really gets me inspired. How important do you think passion is for the product when you're recruiting, when you're building the business, when you're raising money, you know, when you're selling to retailers, how important is it for you to have passion and how do you, how do you project that passion onto now a much bigger team than just yourself? I still do all the sales meetings. So I, and I do every trade show. Um, and I'm still intimately involved in all of our marketing. So, um, you know, I oftentimes to a fault and I have a really tough time handing things over. Um, but when I think it's a lot more powerful when you're at a trade show and buyers are coming up to you and they're like, oh, wow, you're the CEO of the company and you're here selling me and handing out products to hundreds of people. I think that's a lot more compelling than, oh, here's my broker. You know, yeah, my brokers will handle my salespeople, like our sales team will handle it. I hate that. I hate that shit. Sorry. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear no, you're um, allowed to do whatever you want. <laughs> I really, I really don't like, I see a lot of founders raise money on a pre-rev idea, um, high gross margins. It fits the, it's the perfect profile, light shipping, 60 to 80% landed margins, D to C amazing for Amazon. Boom. Let's give this founder five to 10 million bucks. They'll figure it out. And then they hire 30 people and they think they're above rolling up their sleeves and going to demo at a grocery store. Uh, that shit, it makes me sick. And I, I just, I, I, I honestly am like, good luck because you're not passionate about what you're really building to the extent that you'll go on the front lines and, and get it done. Um, how scalable do you think that is um, long-term? As I said, as the business gets bigger um, and I need to, refocus my efforts. That's part of my transition and evolution. And I'm doing that now mm-hmm. um, because it's not obviously the most scalable, but if you don't do it in the early days and set the precedent, then, you know, you're just another VC backed company trying to, to sell their wares. Great. You mentioned uh, the mentor you had. Um, and I know that you're really active or I witness you really being active on LinkedIn, which I, I personally love. Um, did some of that come from that experience and, and how have you found really working through LinkedIn and, and have you found, have you found that to be a good return on your time, um, for broadening the brand, broadening out you, like how, how do you, how do you, how do you feel about that experience you've had with? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to make a super bold statement, but like, I want to be like the, the Michael Jordan or the LeBron James of CPG. And that's like, I'm serious. Like, I want to talk to every founder in this space. Um, I want to, uh, you know, be on the frontier of, of innovation and new products and, uh, you know, building giant companies that people are consuming in their households globally. And yeah. so 
if that's what I want to do, then I need to interface and talk to every founder. And doing that gives me a lot of knowledge that I can share with more founders. And that flywheel energizes me and I love it. And even just talking to people like you, I love, I love people and I love stories and I love watching people overcome adversity. And so um, that has, has led to what is now um, stick with your dreams, which is this podcast that we're doing. It's led to ice cream Sundays, which is this newsletter. All that is, is me regurgitating what I'm getting in these conversations with people and building a business and it helps people. And so if one person shoots me an email and says, man, that top, that, that newsletter you put out about how to convince Whole Foods or a retailer to pick me up, that actually won me a new retail account. Like that helps someone. Why, why wouldn't I do it? Um, back to your other question about personal brand. No, nothing new is happening here. It's just new channels. Like Richard Branson is the absolute king at personal brand. Um, and if you look at some of his quotes, he'll say the best investment I've ever made is in my personal brand. And you have to, you know, also put the time in and execute to support a personal brand like a Richard Branson, which he does. But because he's built personal brand, he's created an orbit for innovation and uh, other entrepreneur, entrepreneurs or operators who want to work with him to, you know, change the world. And so um, that's how I see personal brand. And LinkedIn has been my, my breakthrough channel because I feel like I missed Twitter in all transparency, I wasn't on Twitter early enough. And four years ago, I started to notice that if I was creating content on LinkedIn every single day and networking and creating with, uh, connecting with people, um, I started to get some pretty strong reach. And so that's why LinkedIn has been my go-to channel. Cool. I, I, I agree with, uh, with the Branson comment. Richard is a maverick, maverick marketer, but lives, uh, what I, love I actually think you told. I actually think you were the one who told me that quote. Yeah, so. I, I, I might have been. No, no. I, I, well, I, I, it's my observation that I, I think he's. Yeah, he's one of those guys that one of the. Yeah, one of the best things he ever did, if not the best thing, was the investment in his in his in his own message. What he wanted to give. You know, he he shared with me that you can't control what others say about you. You know, there's sometimes are going to be amazing things, but when you're you know doing the things that he does, there's there's going to be you know, people that are the naysayers, you know, uh, or the pessimists. And he's such an optimist. And, you know, he just shared with me that it's, a, it's important to be able to maybe let people make their own decision, but share what you feel um, is you share over time, what is on your mind and in your heart. And it's nothing to be scared of. Just, just do it. And um, yeah, he's been, and he shared the in his books, like the I believe, like the uh, losing his losing my virginity and, and a few of the other books that he put out. Their medium was through written books. Imagine if they had Instagram, oh. you know, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. No, and so like docu, like I also want to look back and have like and document this entire process with you know interviews, podcasts, content. Like I'm so I just want to look back and share this experience with with uh you know my kids and other people because it's 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 been profound for me so i agree i agree um this gets a little more to the to the business side but because there are a lot of uh people that are out there trying to build cpg brands um would you would you give them advice on once you've got a product 
you know, how to actually go about pitching a retailer because it is one of these things that I find so well, clearly so lucrative for a CPG product. Is there something that like you didn't realize when you first started and now you're like, okay, I got, you know, outside of starting with a great product. Yeah. We didn't go into retail for the first two years of our business, which probably was a little too long, but at the same time, like our brand wasn't ready. And what we were doing was we were doing pop-ups, events, activations, catering B2B. um, And we were getting paid to, you know, for example, like a Nike or a Beats by Dre, they have this big corporate event or a wellness retreat and they need 15,000 popsicles. And so we would get paid X thousand dollars and they would pre-purchase product. We would show up with our branded bar and staff and our team and we'd get paid to tell them about Dream Pops, watch how these tens of thousands of people would interact with the product, how the packaging could get better. We could test packaging while we were getting paid. And so we used... 50 plus events over two years to build brand, acquire customers and figure out the best route to market. The problem with retail is you have one shop. Mm. Like, I mean, sometimes, you know, you can tweak and make adjustments, but like if you go into Whole Foods, SOPAC, that's 60 stores that are going to carry your brand. Mm. And then you've got data. The second that product hits the shelf, you've got data on data on data, your comp to your category, um, and let's say, you know, I mean, dude, if you saw like the first iteration of our product, we had like, it looked like a weed bag with a sticker on it. <laughs> and, you know, then, then we, we moved over to a rebrand that I thought was amazing and it looked beautiful. And we started putting that phase one product. We actually, you know, in, into grocery stores and it did, it was, it would sell, but it wasn't selling and turning because, you know, we, for another really important thing is to put the actual image of the product on the front of pack, at least for our category and, and others, I'd recommend it. We didn't have a picture of the product. It was just a beautiful design. And so hmm. one thing that we learned quickly was what's called the five second rule in retail. If you need to be able to identify what the product is via the packaging from 10 to 15 feet away, looking at the shelf in five seconds. And if it doesn't pop and you know what it is like here, for example, right? You can see, the bags and the bites. A couple of really fun facts. The bags, if you look at the popsicle category, everything is in corrugated boxes. So we're like, okay, the design of the shop of the popsicle itself is a unique form factor. Our packaging is going to mimic that. So we put them in pouches. And everyone's like, how are you going to put those in pouches? That's so weird. And I'm like, it's weird, but people are going to grab it because it's different. Then on the bites, um, they're smaller and skinnier than traditional pints. So they don't just look like all the other pints in that section way harder from a supply chain standpoint to do it. But my recommendation to anyone is find a unique form factor or packaging solution. If you can, that will make you look different on shelf. Brilliant. Why do you think um, being vertically integrated in your business is so important? And maybe even thinking back to your investment banking days, do you find it lucrative for all businesses um, or do you think it's specific businesses that require being vertically integrated? Everyone in the beginning thought I was crazy, didn't know what I was doing. Uh, moronic. Like, I can't believe a frozen is so impossible. You guys are going to manufacture this yourself. Are you out of your mind? Um, and in many respects, sure, I hear them. 
because you could just hire a contract manufacturer and put out a product really fast, high volumes. Here's what they don't realize. The geometric shape of our pot is custom. It's like building a custom car. Like you can't just call up your local ice cream manufacturer and say, Hey, I need this, you know, these geometric popsicles. They can't make them. The technology to make popsicles has been the same for 30, 40, 50 plus years. Uh So not only were we trying to do something that looked different, but we're in, we were innovating in, in the industrial component of the business. And a lot of people don't realize. That. And so we went from using these little molds in my mom's kitchen to like five different commercial spaces to 15 of our own workers and myself included with my co-founder at the time, making product on the line, packaging it by hand, putting it into pallets, sending it out to finally, we bought our equipment. We then, um, you know, hired a great team of engineers and manufacturers. That's their expertise. And so now we're a hybrid solution where we own the equipment, but we pay them to manufacture it with like with best in class manufacturers. So that's how we did it. Um, there are other ways you can hire a co-packer and you could buy one piece of mold or a piece of equipment that can allow you to differentiate. But the biggest thing that we've done is we've closed ourselves off from sometimes co-packers. They'll manufacture seven of the same competitors in their facility, oftentimes, because there are only so many places that can make ice cream or smoothies. Everyone knows every Coleman. So yes, you can protect your formula, but the truth is as you keep getting bigger and things work, you get ripped off. Like this business is, it's, it's really infamous for people ripping each other off because they're all using the same formulators and they're all using the same manufacturers. So protecting our IP has been paramount and it's cost more money and it's been way harder, but it's the reason that we're going to succeed. Sorry if that was a long winded. No, 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 no. I think it's so important. I agree with everything you just said. Um, I think it's one of these things that when capital is scarce at the beginning of a business um, or capital is very expensive, you know, it's one of those things that is really hard to, to actually um, decide to do, but long-term strategy, hundred percent. I mean, (laughs) yeah, you, you have real IP in a business that, you know, long-term because you did something different um, probably should have, you know, Steve like, Jobs. Like I hate, I'm not comparing myself to Steve Jobs. I'm just saying there's a, what great, do you mean? You're wearing you watch, the black t-shirt. And, you know, it's, okay. it's, it's, it's I'm, I'm just saying if you, I rewatched both his docs, cause I, I just, I really enjoy it. Those two movies, jobs and the, and, the, and Steve jobs, he had a closed system. And if you remember the monitor could never open unless you had the special tools to open the closed system. We are a closed system. We're making products very in a very unique way. That's our defensibility. That's why Nestle right tomorrow can't come in and launch Bites because there's only so many people that can make it uh, today. And eventually they're going to replicate it. If you look at the Microsoft Surface, like I was just in there, it looks exactly like a, lab, a MacBook. But like you have to create some defensibility and differentiation or else I'm playing a longer game. All the A lot of these other brands are trying to like flip this thing in like two to four years, co-pack it, scale it. But like, you're going to get rocked if you have no differentiation. Like someone's going to have deeper pockets. I agree. I agree. Well, Steve Jobs might be a good example because um, leading to my next question, an incredible entrepreneur, incredible innovator, like, you know, 
Yeah, I mean, top, top, top of his game. But lost his life in his mid-50s. Um, and yeah, I think, I think many of the things that I've seen on his regrets have been around obsessing over work, not spending enough time with his family. Um, and of course, you know, we're, we're both young men. There's, 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 we've got probably the greatest asset we have is time, you know? Um, but how do you think about balance in your life? How do you think about carving out time for loved ones? How do you think about defending against burnout? You know, are these things you think about or is it no pedal to the metal right now? This is a chapter in my life and I'm just going to go for it. Or are these things you're, you're, you're cognizant of and you have breaking systems in your life to, to deal with those. And, 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 and what are those? First few years of this, I was all in every day, nonstop in a, in a, in a very unbalanced and unhealthy way. Um, I still work a lot like, but, but it doesn't feel like work because I used to work a lot as a banker and like, I'm working on week, like every day I'm working, but it's fun. It's playtime. So like, it, yeah, there are, ta- there are parts that really are, are really challenging, but it's a different uh, mode of work, which I've enjoyed. That being said, um, I got to a bit of a breaking point after year, year one and a half, two, where I was so distraught and stressed and anxious and panicked that I needed help. And so um, I was lucky my mom introduced me to a guy named Kai, who was my life coach um, slash therapist. And I speak to him every Sunday. And we've been talking for uh, close to four and a half years now, every Sunday. Um, He helped me create a practice, a daily practice, which I do every day. And I've actually done for 1031 days straight. And I have not missed a day um, where I do breath work, gratitude, um, visualization and manifestation exercises. It's about 15 minutes. And I go through my life and I talk, I think about everything I'm grateful for my family, all the opportunities I've been given my health. Um, and then, you know, uh, you know, things that I'm, that, that are happening in, in the business, what I want to have happen. I say them to myself mentally, um, and then, you know, that breath work also helps to calm me and relax me and center me. Um, but then I, I visualize things that are going to happen. And I, I really am a big believer in manifestation. And so when you visualize something for a thousand plus days, like a lot of those things are starting to happen. And it, it's a little, it's almost like surreal um, watching those things happen. And, and uh, that practice and meeting with Kai every Sunday those routines I think have changed my life and I highly recommend it for anyone who's going through these types of journeys. I agree. Any sort of high performer, high achiever. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's sometimes a lonely place to be, isn't it? Um, yeah. And I'm I think re- like not non-negotiables, right. I'm sure you have your non-negotiables you have to do every day. And, uh, I've seen that as a common trend. Big time. Um, I'm going to let you go because it is a Monday. Uh, it's a holiday in Canada, but I'm, it's a, I know it's a working day in the U.S. Uh, I'm reminded on this call how impressive you are. I, I'm really, every conversation we have, I'm so impressed. Um, and I thank you for this time. And I thank you for sharing your message, not just on this podcast, but across LinkedIn and, and the different channels you have. Because I think the more we do of this um, and the more we can inspire entrepreneurs to to find their, their passion and their fulfillment, 
um, and create jobs and pay tax and, you know, do all the, all the good things that, that come from a business. Um, I think we're going to have a way better world. So thank you, David, for your time today. Of course. Thanks for having us and sharing my story. I appreciate you, uh, you thinking about us. Thanks for listening to Building Business and Balance with me, Brian Pacebrega. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and the wisdom of the guests I'm privileged to have met and worked with around the world. Subscribe to my series on iTunes for real, raw, and diverse discussions with thought leaders and pioneers on building business, balance, and defining your own success.